Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on March 27, 2019, covering Q1 financial reporting considerations. The panelists for the webcast were Rick Levin, a partner in PwC's Tax Accounting Services Group and U.S. Tax Accounting Services Leader, Luke Shervaney, a partner in the Tax Accounting Services Group, Amber Whalen, a director in the Tax Accounting Services Group, and Brian Croto, a PwC Assurance Partner. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the current tax reporting landscape, the leasing standard, and valuation allowance assessments. Have a listen. So let's start with current landscape. And, and, and I want to get into a little bit where we ended up for 2018. We did a webcast early January. We did this hot topics, you know, 10 events or 10 top 10. Uh, and the part of the reason we did that is there were just so many issues heading into year end that we knew people were going to have to deal with. Uh, and for that reason, we felt it was important to try to, to, to share some of those things, but we did expect it to be quite hectic. But Luke, I, I'm interested in some of your observations and what you saw over the last couple of months. All right. So 2019, like you said, the year that was, um, few broad takeaways from 2018 year ends. Um, 2018 was complicated, if, if not more complicated in many ways than 2017 was. The, you know, 2017 when, when enactment happened, but 2018 was a very complicated year and ultimately a complicated year end. I think one of the big complications from 2018, big takeaways from 2018, is the um, international provisions within the new U.S. tax law. So the toll charge, guilty beat, FDII, 163J, foreign tax credits. A lot of complexity with the new law from a te- from a tax technical perspective. Then we had evolving regulations coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those provisions, I shouldn't say all of them, but many of them are interconnected. So the, the, the tax technical is complicated, the accounting for it's complicated, the regulations on top of all that, and then the accounting for that is complicated, and then the interconnectivity of all those made, made accounting for those in particular um, challenging. And, and then on top of all that, you have... Um, areas of judgment. You have your valuation allowance assessments. You have your indefinite reinvestment assertions. You have your UTP assessments um, for those. So all things considered, the international provisions within the new U.S. tax law continues, was a challenge and continues to be a challenge through 2018. The other, the other area I'll point out is disclosures. So um, I, think we, I think we all know, but I'll say it anyway, SAB 118 has ended. So that's in the past. So companies went final with their SAB 118 measurement period. We, we've been pulling the Dow 30 company disclosures on the mm-hmm. past several webcasts, just to kind of use those as a data point for what trends we're seeing among some disclosures to share those. Um, whether it was a Dow 30 or, or other companies, we saw some trends with disclosures around indefinite reinvestment assertions. So more companies changing their assertion during 2018 in light of, of their own facts, but you know, the fact that U.S. tax reform is part of facts now to, to be assessing. So we saw, you know, disclosure changes around indefinite reinvestment assertions. Uh, guilty, we were tracking guilty throughout 2018 and ultimately through year end to see if companies ultimately uh, chose their policy to be accounting for guilty under a deferred tax model or as a period cost. We saw most companies coming out with the period cost. Um, versus a deferred tax model in, in the area guilty. Yeah, you know, that, and that's one where, um, to your point, 
I mean, that trying to put guilty in your deferreds is so incredibly complex that we didn't see very many companies that were going that route heading into year end. And we did see an uptick. You know, if we saw companies with fourth quarter that did, in fact, make that policy choice, but still a very, very small percentage. And they all tend to be from the same two industry groups, either tech or pharma. Yep. Agreed. So one more one more point um, around trends from last year and really kind of gives me a springboard to the next section here is, is just the overall accounting and disclosure for proposed regulations, how companies um, not only accounted for the impact of the proposed regulations, but also made disclosures around proposed regulations within their 10Ks. So that's 2018. Now it's 2019. We're three months in, almost done with uh, Q1 here as we sit here today in March. Um, so what's what's the future look like? I think the big thing is, is more regulations are forthcoming, right? We've got um, proposed and final regulations coming with between now and throughout this year, and a lot of them targeted here uh, by June 30th. So just this quarter, we've had the 965 regulations finalized. We've had the Section 199 Cap A um, finalized. We've had proposed to Section 250 guidance on FDI and guilty. That was from March, as well as proposed guidance on 951B and 958B. So uh, theme here as we look forward is more regulations, making sure that we're applying the accounting framework to um, account for regulations, whether they're proposed or final in the period, making sure that all the accounting is done in the right period. I thought we were done with regulations after Q4. No, <laughs> not so much. That's disappointing. <laughs> it does seem, though, though, that if you think about regulations and you know, the shift now to being more the finalization of regulations, which... You know, we didn't, you mentioned a couple, but really not much happening in the first quarter. So it looks to be shaping up to be more of a second quarter issue, yep. you know, as we're going to see more to the point you made about the June deadline. Uh, we could see some additional packages come through and we could be dealing with some of the same concerns that we saw last year with uh, the the volume and the timeliness of when those regulations come out. That's so, right. Um, unfortunately, it kind of is what it is. And Amber, the leasing standard somewhat got lost in all the, the conversations around tax reform. So we haven't really talked much about it on the webcast. And to be honest with you, there hasn't been much in the way of complexities either on this issue. A lot of questions we're getting and whatnot. And I think that's probably indicative of the fact that there aren't a ton of issues that we're seeing. But uh, just as we try to think about this is the first quarter that for public companies they'll have to deal with a leasing standard. It's effective now. Um, what are some of the, the uh, things that people ought to be thinking about? So as you said, it, it's fairly straightforward when you're looking at the base case. So I think under ASC 840, just a, a basic example is companies with operating leases generally had straight line rent accruals and a related deferred tax asset for that. And then maybe a smaller number of companies had uh, prepaid rent with a related deferred tax liability. Mm -hmm. So on adoption of ASC 842, um, companies will be recording a right of use asset or liability for book purposes, and you're generally not going to have tax basis for that. So you'll have a related deferred tax asset or liability, and this results in new DTAs and DTLs that didn't exist previously. So that's fairly straightforward, but there mm -hmm. are cases where it can get a little bit more challenging. So, for example, let's take a failed sale leaseback situation. So under prior gap ASC 840, um, you would have had a deferred gain for book purposes and then a related deferred tax asset. But post-adoption, that deferred gain would come off the books and your related DTA would also come off as well. So if you're a company that has a valuation allowance in place, 
that could affect the measurement of your mm -hmm. valuation allowance. So it's just one example to show that you may need to think a little bit more about this. So not exactly, ho hopefully straightforward for most people, but there could be some things to think about. Um, okay, so let's let's move into then um, interim reporting because you know it's been some time that we've really had to deal with uh, you know the model. It's it's six months I guess since we've had to deal with the model, and there's always a sense of relief when we get to the first quarter, right? I mean, it's like oh thank God we're not in year end anymore. We're back in the interim model. It's a lot less complicated. Uh, but having said that, there still are some things that you could get tripped up on if you're not paying close attention to. So if you could just share with us what some of those things might be. Sure, so let's start by just grounding ourselves in the basic model under ASC 740. So you're going to calculate your estimated annual effective tax rate. And what you're really getting at here is what do you estimate to be your tax rate for the year on items of ordinary income or loss? So ordinary income and loss items go in, so what is not included there would be things like changes in tax laws or rates, uh, changes in prior year tax provisions, uh, changes related to the accumulative, the accumulative effect of change in accounting principle or discontinued operations. So all of those things would not be going into your worldwide estimated annual effective tax rate, or the AETR as we call it. So once you've established what will not go into that calculation, then those items are going to be recorded in the period that they occur, so recorded discreetly. And you're going to take your AETR, apply that to your year-to-date ordinary income or loss, and then add the discrete effects. So that's all fairly simple and kind of sounds yeah, like math, sound so right? Yeah. <laughs> Just math. Um, but it does get a little more complicated. There are a couple of exceptions to the basic model in limited circumstances. So one exception would be if you have a lost jurisdiction for which no benefit can be recorded, that jurisdiction would be accepted from the basic model. Or if you have a jurisdiction for which you cannot reliably estimate your ordinary income or loss. So th those are a couple of situations where um, you would have the exception to the basic model. And in that case, you'd want to consider um, disclosing that to the extent that it's material so that the readers of the financial statements can understand the way in which you've prepared your interim provision. And one of the things that uh, observations I've had just talking to clients the last couple of weeks, uh, a lot of the things that they're concerned about when it comes to the interim reporting is kind of a lot of the same things we saw in Q1 of last year. It's, it's around the international provisions. Luke, you kind of touched on this to a certain degree when you were talking about 2018. But um, we're now needing to come up with our ETR for the year. You're going to have to come up with an estimate of your guilty, your beat, your FDII calculations. And uh, and then there's just concerns over, you know, the data to get to do those calculations, the complexity, the interdependency with the other provisions, mm -hmm. uh, and the lack of clarity in, on guidance as well is still there. So it's kind of interesting as heading into the first quarter that that's still, after a year, we're still dealing with some of those very same concerns. Uh, another thing that, that struck me is when you were going through the examples of uh, exceptions. So we have this exception that deals with the losses, foreign losses for which there's no tax benefit. And you know the fact that you then remove them from the ETR calculation. There was this interesting debate that took place last year as to what you do in those situations where guilty comes into play and those foreign losses are actually decreasing the parent company's guilty inclusion. And so then can you still say that there's foreign loss, losses with no benefit in that situation? 
So I think there, what we believe is that there are two acceptable views. So one view is that the exception would still apply, and the other view, as you might guess, is that it would not apply. Oh, okay. Can't, can't get it wrong that way. I mean, if it's if either way is right, <laughs> I'm all for those kinds of rules. So if you're in the camp that's arguing that the exception would apply, you would say, I'm looking at this lost jurisdiction, and there is no benefit in this lost jurisdiction, so the exception applies, exclude that from my worldwide AETR. But if you're in the other camp, you would say, I'm looking at this lost jurisdiction, but there is a benefit in the U.S. in the form of the guilty inclusion. So that exception is not going to apply, and I'm going to include this foreign jurisdiction in my worldwide AETR. Importantly, either way, the U.S. guilty impact is included in the U.S. provision. So it's really just what are you doing with that foreign lost jurisdiction that you're deciding here. Gotcha. And, and this is one of those things, by the way, that we do have in our FAQs, which are in the resources section. So if if you're looking for more information on, uh, on that particular position, uh, you can find that FAQ within the resources section. So, um, Luke, another couple of areas that people struggle with at year-end, uh, areas of complexity and a lot of judgment, outside basis difference in valuation allowance yep. assessments. And the fact that we get to an interim period doesn't mean that you all of a sudden don't need to worry about those things, of course, but what are some of the things that it's good to just as in the context of reminders to think about what are the kinds of things that you need to be concerned about with respect to outside basis or valuation allowance assessments. Yeah, I'll start on valuation allowance assessments and I'll, I'll just kind of hit on a point you just said that you need to do your valuation allowance assessments each balance sheet date. So you're at an interim period, you look at your valuation but allowance I thought in assessments. The first quarter, you know, it can't be any different, right? Than the... you, you need to look at your valuation allowance assessments. <laughs> you're each not, balance you're not sheet taking period. that argument. No. <laughs> um, so, so I think a big thing to think about is if you have a change in valuation allowance during an interim period, you need to be thinking about um, what amount of that change in valuation allowance would be recorded discreetly, and what part of that change in valuation allowance would be recorded through the annual effective tax rate. Um, on thinking about the discrete side of it, if, if you have a change in valuation allowance um, related to a beginning of year um, valuation allowance balance, and the release of that is based on income projected in future years, that that is the discrete piece. Um, if that fact exists within a company's fact pattern, you'd recognize that effect of the change in valuation allowance discreetly. If the change in valuation allowance is based on current year ordinary income, that is part of the annual effective tax rate. So. If you're in an interim period, you have a change in valuation allowance, you need to be thoughtful of what amount is discrete and what amount is part of my annual effective tax rate. Um, I think it bears repeating, you, you can't really shortcut the valuation allowance assessment either at, at an interim date. So you need to be looking at new information each interim period. You need to be looking at all available evidence, weighting all available evidence, including you know your three-year cumulative loss position. Um, if there's a change in valuation allowance, you need to properly record it. Disclosure is, is important, making sure that you have proper disclosure, including early warning. If, if facts and circumstances exist, consider um, whether or not early warning disclosure is needed um, around your valuation allowance position. So a few things to be thinking of there. Um, if we move to indefinite, re I think you asked me about indefinite reinvestment assertions as well. Yeah. And there's, there's some similarities here conceptually. So. Um, your indefinite reinvestment assertion also needs to be looked at um, each interim period. And if you have a change in, in your indefinite reinvestment assertion, you also need to determine how much of that is recorded discreetly and how much of that is recorded as part of the annual effective tax rate. 
if you have a change in assertion, whether or not you're taking down a deferred tax liability on your outside basis difference or recording a deferred tax liability on your outside basis difference, um, if you have a beginning of year balance um, associated with that outside basis difference, that would be recorded discreetly. Um, if you have a change in assertion and it's related to your current year, um, ordinary income, uh, current year, that would be part of your annual effective tax rate. So again, conceptually, um, directionally the same kind of logic. You gotta make sure that if you have a change, you've properly identified the discrete piece and properly recorded the piece in your annual effective tax rate. I think another point here just popped in my head. A lot of companies may have changed their indefinite reinvestment assertion, so they are recording deferred tax liabilities now. Um, Maybe kind of new, new territory for them. Um, be mindful that if you have uh, uh, changes in currency uh, associated with the outside basis difference, um, the, the, that those changes would be recorded discreetly in the interim period. So be thinking about that component as well. Yeah, you need to get those into OCI in theory on an interim <laughs> basis. Yep. You know, it's, it's interesting, so the kind of the key takeaway from what you're saying is that when you look at these very complex areas, uh, unlike some of the areas within the accounting model, when we get to an interim period, we can kind of take a step back and use a different yep. model. You really aren't with both of those. You, you're treating it just like you would a year end in terms right. of the assessment, uh, which is a good takeaway. Yep. Um, to add to something that you said, and it relates to outside basis differences and goes back to what we're seeing the impact that tax reform is having on that particular area, and it's profound. You know, everyone is, is really, there's questions that are coming up that, that uh, clients are struggling with. Um, one of them deals with the situation where when you think about how the tax law impacts uh, the computation or, or the assertion itself. So, you know, the accounting rules haven't changed. Those are still the same. They, those, as a result of tax reform, the only thing that has changed, of course, is the tax treatment. Right. Uh, and with specifically with indefinite reinvestment, you think about the notice 2019-1, which was the dealt with the ordering rule around previously taxed earnings and profits. Mm -hmm. And that's just laying out for people the how you would treat distributions and what bulk of unremitted earnings it comes from. Uh, well, that's going to put a bias towards or preference towards prior year earnings. So this argument of current year, which we some, we've grown so accustomed to making mm -hmm. uh, under old tax law, may, it may be more difficult to make that assertion going forward. So That's right. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you.